Good morning, everybody. I want to add my word of welcome to Erica and the team. My name is Tony Diekman. I am one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to uh, share God's word with you this morning. And I want to thank you, first of all, for participating in that reading, that long reading, as Kristen said, as she walked off. You know, it's like, and you guys are maybe wondering if the reading was that long, how long is this message going to be? So um, we'll see, right? That's kind of how I take it. We'll see. But uh, yeah, it's just a joy to be here with you. You know, one of the things that I've loved about this COVID time, and that, yeah, I said that, one of the things I've loved about this COVID time is just how we've understood the importance of relationship, right? We've been isolated, and when we start to see and have hope that maybe things are, we'll see, right? Are getting somewhat back to where we can be more together and, and less distance in between us would be a great thing. But one of the things I've disliked about this time in COVID is the fact of things that were shut down and things that got shut down, opened up, shut back down. And one of those things was the theater here in Chicago. And I don't know how many of you are, love the theater. I love the theater. My wife and I used to go all the time and then it all got shut down. And the last time we went to the theater was to see this play, Hamilton. Have you guys seen it in person? It was fantastic and they've since done it live on TV. I mean, it's just awesome. And, you know, it's a story, I can condense it, you know, because this is my point. It's a story about Alexander Hamilton, who was one of the founding fathers, the first secretary of the treasury under George Washington, a brilliant man. And, and in the story, we learn he becomes friends and befriends a man named Aaron Burr. And they become close friends. But then over the years, as, you know, they jockey for, like, status or leadership, there becomes this animosity between them. And, and eventually they become these arch enemies. So much so that it culminates with a duel where Alexander Hamilton is shot by Aaron Burr and dies as a consequence of those injuries. He dies. This relationship that was, you know, once close is divided. And you get this sense in the text, and you especially get this sense from the biographers, that what really divided them was the pridefulness of each of them. Right? Each wanted to be the greater of the two. And they, they just were dogging in their pursuit of that. And, and one of the biographers of Aaron Burr is, is recorded of him as saying at the end of his life, he said, had I read Stern more and Voltaire less, I should have seen the world was wide enough for Hamilton and myself. At the end of his life, he, he recognizes, and probably earlier on, but here he's finally admitting it, that he'd let his pride lead to him killing a bright, beautiful gift to this country. And at the end of his life, he voices that regret. Right? And I share that story with you because that's really kind of what's at the heart of, of all of our arguments is pride. In fact, James says in the Old New Testament that what causes fights and quarrels among us, it's because we want what we want, our desires. And I bring that up because we're in Genesis today, and, and you know that, but we're in Genesis 1, which is a, a, a section of text that has divided the world. And it's become this war we see in our culture between science and faith. And it's really escalating, and it's only continued to escalate, where people are saying you can't be a scientist if you're a person of faith, and people of faith saying you can't be a scientist and be a person of faith. They just don't coexist. And it's become this big war in, in our culture, more so here in the United States than anywhere, but here it's become that, right? And, and it's become where we've tried to defend arguments that really aren't defensible, 
And it really started back like in the 17th century around there, I think. And, and what happened is there was this archbishop who went to the Bible and he started calculating days backwards to try and figure out how old the earth was based upon what the text was reading. And you know what he came up with? It started the evening before October the 23rd, 4004 BC. Really, the evening before October 23rd, 4004 BC. And what's interesting is others have taken up the task and nobody comes up with the same date. Maybe that's not what the text is saying. Or how about the people that have predicted the end of the world? Even though Jesus said nobody knows that date, that doesn't keep us from trying to figure it out. And how's that gone? Maybe we need to learn something from our own history and sort of step back and say, why are we entering into this argument? And why are we as people of faith arguing with each other? Where people are saying, well, you can't be a Christian if you, if you adhere to a, an old earth. Or you're an idiot if you think the earth is only 4,000 years old. And, and it's like, really, is that what Jesus came to do? Is to like separate us and, and divide us over this issue? And is that really what the text is saying? Well, you know, I, I, I have to tell you, I was a part of that argument. For most of my life, it was not till the last five or seven years that I started reading other scholars and other people that are saying, yeah, maybe that's not what it's saying. And their task has been to be faithful to the text. And that's what I was taught in, in seminary, was to be faithful to the text and to the context, but really not really understanding fully what that meant. And these scholars, people like Dr. John Walton and John Steck and, and New Testament scholars like N.T. Wright, and, and, and Joy Ames, Imes and, and others have taken upon this task to sort of say, I think there's a better way, folks, especially for us in the church. There's a better way. And let's start with what the text says. Let's start with the context. And they, they help us understand and see and, and admit, right? It starts with an admission that this text that we just read, that we've become so familiar with, that we think we have a handle on, was written to an ancient people in an ancient culture, in an ancient language, and we have to admit, we don't understand it. If we're honest, most of us don't truly understand that culture, or that language, or those people. But thankfully, these men and women have spent their lives, and, and working on the shoulders of others before them, spending their lives helping us understand. And, and calling us to sort of pause for a second in this argument, and say, what does the text say? And how can we faithfully understand the text so that we can understand this text for our, for our good? It was Paul that told Timothy that all Scripture, referring to the Old Testament, all the Scripture is useful for teaching. It is God's Word inspired by Him and useful for teaching. God gives His authority to this Word and it's useful for us. But I love what Dr. Walton says. He says, this text isn't written to us but it is written for us. It's written to this ancient culture, but it's also for us. But to understand how it's for us, we need to understand what they were saying. And it just makes sense that what they were asking, the questions they were addressing, and the answers they were giving were the questions of that day. That text, they weren't thinking about quantum mechanics and, and dark matter. They weren't thinking about that. Those are the questions. So the question then becomes, how do we make sense of this book? How, how do we approach this book? And what can we today 
in this really short period of time, come to understand about this text and what, what questions can we ask? And there's questions, I believe, that are being asked in that time that were consistent with their culture, consistent with the culture around them. And you can also see consistent, not only then, but throughout the scriptures, throughout human history. The same questions that we're asking today were being asked at that time. And I believe the text helps us address that question, or at least several of it. I'm only going to focus on one. And that question is, who? Who is this God? Right? It wasn't a question as to how things came to be. Of course the gods did that, right? Of course God did that. We're not concerned about that. But who is this God? And, and what is he about? And more than that, it's like, so what does that mean for me? Right? Answering these questions, where did I come from? And, and then why am I here? That's all wrapped up in this question of who God is. Because then they would be asking the question, well, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my people? We ask those same questions today, don't we? Maybe not exactly the same way, but we're wrestling with those same questions. And, and I believe, as we heard last week from Pastor Nick, we have, a, we have a beginning understanding because we have the rest of the text. Genesis 1 gives us a foundation, gives us a really good understanding of who he is, and he keeps explaining and keeps revealing himself as we need through the rest of the story. We have a more full picture of him. And last week, like I said, Pastor Nick shared with us that this God is a God of love. That he existed in this loving relationship, not just a loving relationship, but a love that was other-centered. Father concerned about the Son, the Son concerned about the Father, the Spirit lifting both of them up. This loving relationship existed from the beginning. And we know that the greatest picture of that love is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We get a clearer picture of this God through this Son, Jesus, who came and gave his life for us, all to reveal the truth about his Father. All that you need to know about the Father, he says, is, is embodied in me. But I believe in the text that we read, we get a glimpse into this love of this God as he shares the beginning of this time with these people in ancient times. And so let's delve into the text and see what we can, how we can answer this question of who is this God and, and what does that mean for us. First and foremost, we read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right away in the very first sentence, we get a picture that I believe the writer is trying to communicate to us and that it was in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is before all things. God existed before all things. And he is above all things. It was God that created everything we see and some things we have yet to see. It was God who created everything. Not the heavens and the earth and the people that inhabit it that created God. God is primary. He's first. He's foremost. He's above all things. But as we start to read in these days of creation, we start to see he's different. There's something different about this God that he reveals in his creation and the account of that creation. We read 
First, that this God is a God of order. The days themselves are ordered, one through seven. God is a God of order. He brings order. And as we see in day one, he brings into existence night and day. God is the one that establishes that. And in day two, God brings into existence the seas and the skies. And in day three, he brings into existence the land and the vegetation. Do you start to see an order to the order? And in day four, he brings into existence the great lights, the moon and the stars and the heavenly bodies that illuminate. And in day five, he brings into existence the creatures of the sea and the sky. And then finally on day six, he brings into existence the animals and the humans. Do you start, to, can you see an order to this? For centuries, scholars have seen an order to this. And as you pause and just stop and look, you can see there's an order. In fact, scholars point out there's a literary order to this. Not just to the numbers and the days, but how all of these days correspond to one another. And it tells us something about this God. We see in days one through three, God creating night and day, bringing into existence sea and sky, land and vegetation. And we see how these days correspond to the second three days. It was in day four that God brings into existence and gives the purpose for the lights that will bring us day and night. He gives the lights their purpose. And it's to illuminate and give us seasons. It's to give us time. And in day five, he brings forth the creatures. He brings them into existence of the sea and the sky to inhabit the sea and the sky that he brought into existence on day two. And he gives them their purpose. They are to fly in this space and swim in this space. And they are to replicate and to multiply in their kinds. That's how they are to live. That is what they are to do in the space that God created. And then you can see, can't you, in day six, the corresponding pieces in day six that correspond to the land and the vegetation. The animals and man come into existence to occupy the space that God brought into existence on day three. And they are to be fruitful and multiply. And so we start to see an order, and in this culture, order means something. Repetition means something. We see that everything begins with God. This is his story. And God orders the universe, this cosmos, to ultimately bring forth you and I. This is a God who has created everything that we see, and he's ordered it just so that it will, it will sustain human life that we can exist on this planet. What God is doing, what this God is doing, is for our benefit, not his own. This God orders everything, brings everything to existence, and gives it its purpose so that it can sustain life. And that culminates with human life, which tells us something. It should tell us something that we mean something to this God. If he did all of this for you and me, what does that say about us? 
What does that say about you that God created everything you see so you could breathe and come into existence? But not just that, so that you, as we'll read, could be with him. So that you could experience not just this universe, but that you could experience him. And this creation starts to tell you something. And this story starts to tell you something that you are meaningful. Human life is meaningful. That God brought it into existence and gave it its function to to reproduce in its kind. But also he goes on to tell us that we're not just to exist, but we are to have dominion on this earth. That there's a mission that he's given human life, and that is to rule and have dominion over everything that he has created. But he's very specific. He's not saying that we could do that any way we want. He's like, no, we need to do that as he would do that. We read back into Genesis 1 where it says that let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And and I know for a large part of my life, I'm thinking, God looked like me or I look like God. And somehow there was something broken in me that, that got lost there. And it had more to do with my physical nature. When you read the text, God is a disembodied spirit. And and really, when you read the text, as scholars will tell you, that maybe that's not the best translation or understanding because we think of that in this kind of form. Where that question or that that command is really a question to think about it this way, that let us make man as our image. To go forth and rule in this world as our image in our authority, as our name. He gave those humans the mission of ruling over everything, but doing so as God's representative, as his image bearers. We're called to be stewards. We're not called to be owners. We don't own it. He owns it. We're called to steward it. We're his icons. We're his, we're his like, Vice regents, but we are not the king. But we are to go as him, in his authority, ruling as he would rule. And how does he rule? What is he concerned with? Others. To go forth for the good of others, for the good of his creation, as this loving God has created. He calls us, as his image bearers, to go as his authority here on earth, as he would go. And you see that not only here in Genesis, but you see that all throughout Scripture. You see it at Sinai. Children of Israel were called to be priests, representatives of God to the people and the people to God, and they were called to be a blessing to the nations. We see the same thing about Jesus. We're called to go in his authority, baptizing and teaching, as Paul says, as ambassadors, sharing the good news that God has reconciled the world to himself. We see that same thing that's relevant to us today that was relevant to the people of this time. We're called to be his image bearers. We're called to go as God and rule and care for this planet and the the things of this planet as he would. Not being primarily concerned about ourselves, but the welfare of others. And you'll see as as the text goes on, we, we didn't do that really well. And we still struggle to do that because pride gets in the way, because we want to be God. But that's what he does. That's who he is. 
He's a God who's created everything, ordered everything, before all things, above all things, and he sustains all things. You might be looking at me and going, wait a minute, there's a seventh day you're missing here. What about day seven? And what about our question, who? Who is this God? He is the God before, above, standing under all things. He is an other-centered, loving God. But day seven gives us a final picture of who he is and what he's about and just how loving and caring this God is. Day seven, we read that God takes up his rest. It was on the seventh day that God rested from all his work of creation that he had done. And when I think about rest, I don't know about you, but when I think about rest and I read that, and I think a lot of people have thought that for how we've talked about it, when I think about rest, I think about my recliner, I think about my bed, I think about a beach. And I don't think about you. I think about that. (laughs) But is that what he's talking about? Is that how God rests? I don't think so. And I don't think so because, again, these scholars have helped us understand that maybe that's not what was being communicated. What's being communicated is something a little bit different. What rest meant there, especially for a deity, especially for God, wasn't that they stopped working. Is that they would actually enter their position into what it is they have created. God has created everything. It says, as he looked at all he'd done in creation, after he'd ordered everything and everything was as it would be, should be, and he says it was very good, God then takes up his place in his creation. God has ordered this universe as it should be, and as it's God, he steps in and takes up his place of rule. This universe, this cosmos, is his temple. And it would be right and just that he take up his position over it all. In fact, that's what we're told in Hebrews, is that everything that we see is sustained by his decree. God continues to work in his creation. And to help us understand that, they point us to texts like Psalm 132, where it says, let us go to the dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. Do you see how they're equating his dwelling place, where he lives and where he rules, to his resting place? And again, for the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for us, his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. It's not here where he kicks up his feet and relaxes. He takes up his rightful place as God and creator of everything. And what it tells us about him is that he doesn't just do that and sit back and watch us muck things up. He's not disinterested. He's not disengaged. He's actually involved in his creation. He actually sustains his creation. And on top of that, he continues to reveal himself through time until he gives us the fullest picture of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, again, communicates the love he has for you and I and his creation. That he would not only bring us into existence, but that he himself sustains us. He himself has made a way so that one day, Things will be as they should be once again. Things will be fully as they should be, as we're told. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, when Jesus hands the keys back over to his Father, it says then things will be all. God himself will be all and all. 
and everything will once again be as it should be. That's what we have to look forward to. But in the meantime, we're called to enter into this world, into our world, as his image bearers, going in his authority, seeking to find common ground, seeking to find a path between, not a path that divides, seeking to be faithful students to this text. And that takes works. That takes hard work, folks. We can do that. You can do that. But we do that together. I want to encourage you to be students of this text, to be doers of this text, and and to go into your worlds this week as God's image bearer, someone who carries his name, not in vain, but in truth and in in the character of God, going in his love, other-centered. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, first of all, that you would make yourself known and that we could comprehend you. While we can't comprehend all there is to know about you, we can apprehend your truths, and we thank you for the men and women who devote their lives to faithful study and, and proclamation of your word. I thank you for your son who has made you known. I thank you for the love that we have in him. But, Father, I stand before you, as we all do today, confessing that we're, we're often not satisfied with being image bearers. We want to be the one that actually gives image and actually creates our own image. And we have plenty of platforms for that, and we take plenty advantage of that. And, Father, we confess to you that we, <laughs> we have not been satisfied with your order. We've not been satisfied with your rule. We confess that to you today. And it's at the same time that we're reminded of your son who came for us and who gave his life for us and showed us the true order and what it is to live that abundant, flourishing life. And the one who came and died for those sins that we just confessed. Your word reminds us that we stand forgiven if we have confessed you as Lord and Savior, you are faithful and true. So, Father, we confess our sins knowing your faithfulness. And we ask you to give us the strength to go in his name, which is why we pray in his name the prayer he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.